Isaiah is a preacher. He's a prophet at a time when Israel is in decline, but he's also something of a painter. His words are the brushes, his language, the colors, the audience, the canvas. But Isaiah does more than just preach sermons. He paints pictures. And he leaves in our minds unforgettable images. Two of those images are in the middle of the book, one in chapter 34, another in 35. Both of them painted, if you will, on the same canvas. The first, chapter 34, he paints a desolate land in abandoned cities. In Isaiah's words, the stars have dissolved, the sky is rolled up, the leaves have withered, the fruit is rotting still on the trees, the rivers have turned pitch black, the ground is burning sulfur, the cities are desolate. Wild animals now roam the streets. The dead are still lying in plain view with no one to bury them. And the living, well, there aren't many, but a few that look like zombies. They cannot see, they can't hear, they can't speak. They just wander from one place to the next, looking for the living. It's a visceral image of a country that is full of corruption and idolatry and license and selfish ambition. And all Isaiah does is look at his audience and he paints what everyone sees then something happens. He closes his eyes and then opens them again. And this time, he looks not at his audience, but at the space between them. Then he smiles. And he paints something else over top of what he has just painted. And it's the complete reversal Isaiah says, the desert has become a garden. The rivers are running again and the water is clear. That burning sulfur sand is now pools of water with springs bubbling up. The desert has become a garden. And the people, they're no longer zombies. They're fully alive They can hear, they can see, they can speak. In fact, they're singing. There are thousands of them gathered on this path, this road. It's called the the way of holiness. And as they go, they are singing to the top of their lungs that salvation belongs to their God. These people, they're on a journey, he says, but they, they look like they're already home. What did the prophet see in that space in between the people when he was looking around them instead of at them? What did he see that no one in the room saw? Some say it was heaven. 
Some say the kingdom of God. A few years ago, I said it was the kingdom right next to your head. What I mean is, there is an alternative world, an invisible world that runs parallel to this world. It has features exactly like this world, only they're entirely different in nature. It is occupied with people already. There are things and there are places and things happening in this world that is right next to us. But because it's in another dimension, another sphere of existence, you can't see it. And because you were groomed as I was to believe that this world, the one we can see, is the only world that exists, you think, as I do, almost never about the one right next to your head. But it's there. Just because you can't see it and may not believe it doesn't mean it isn't there. It's there right now running in real time right next to the world we're all sitting in. This world that Isaiah saw and painted, Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven is near. Literally, it is right next to you. It's right in front of you. Paul, the apostle Paul, picks up this language this idea that Jesus brought. The poor in spirit and the persecuted, theirs already is the kingdom of God. He didn't say they would go to heaven. That's not what he said. He said they already possessed heaven. The poor in spirit and the persecuted were already part of heaven. Now the meek and the merciful the hungry and the pure in heart, they shall be. But the poor in spirit and the persecuted are already there. Paul picks this up in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there. And that word citizenship, polytuma, by the way, means our administration, our government, our constitution, our laws, our commonwealth is in heaven and we await a savior from there. Paul talked in Ephesians chapter 2 about being raised already and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Wait for a second. He did not say this would happen. Paul said it had already happened. The writer of Hebrews says that we have come, past tense, we have already come to the holy city, to the city of God, to the new Jerusalem, to thousands upon thousands gathered in joyful assembly. So even though it seems to you like we are only in this world, 
we are at the same time in another one right next to us. The kingdom of God. How does one get in? Because Jesus talked about people that were already in. He talked about people that were not far from. He talked about people that were a long ways off. And he even mentioned a few that used to be in and got thrown out. So how does one enter the kingdom of God. There's about 80 references in the New Testament that refer to the kingdom of God. Only 12 of them say something different about entering. We call these entrance sayings. All 12 of them were words of Jesus. All 12 of them describe a place that is physical and real, but flesh and blood cannot enter. In all 12 of these, it's not a place we will be one day. It's a place we already are. And things are happening there just like they're happening here. I went through the Gospels and read these passages, these entrance sayings of Jesus. And I put them on a list. If you're part of a small group, uh, I've sent that list to the people uh, in your group or in your class. If, if you're not part of a small group, we can make it available, but I don't have a hard copy of it. We can do that next week in the atrium. All I want to do is just read these passages to you, and then I want to get out of the way. Let me tell you why. Because I think churches sometimes act like border control. I mean, we sometimes act like we're the customs officer to a country that is not our country. And our job is just to sort of check people out to make sure that they're checking all the boxes before they get into a country because we're not sure we really want them to be there. And so we've all got our favorite passages, the ones that we keep referring to, and we use those passages like instructions to tell somebody how to become a Christian, how to cross the line, how to get into heaven. But understand, Jesus is not talking here about how to become a Christian. He's talking about how to enter the kingdom of God, that place next to you that is very different from this place. And so in Jesus' mind, this is not so much a border that one crosses. It is a road that one gets on. And the journey itself leads into the kingdom of heaven. There's one other thing. These passages that Jesus gives us, these things that he tells us we have to do to enter seem to some of us very hard. I talk to people almost every week, one after the first service today, who's really struggling with some of these sayings that Jesus gave about entering the kingdom of heaven. But if you see these things as fences, as rules, something you got to do before you can get in, then you see them wrong. These are not examinations. These are the words 
of a shepherd who came from this world and then entered the one we live in and then went back again. For him, this is common sense. And so he's not describing a place he doesn't want you to go. He's describing a place he does want you to go. These are pointers. He's hoping that you will listen and pursue them and not be intimidated by them or by what you don't know. So it does not matter whether you have degrees in theology or know nothing about theology at all, a degree in Bible or are just getting started in the Bible, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're just getting started, these passages are new and they're raw and we don't know what to do with them. My advice is that you take them, you go into a room alone with the Holy Spirit and you read them aloud while you walk around. And as thoughts come to your mind, what does this mean? Write those thoughts down. And then after you're done, take those thoughts to a group, a small group of trusted friends, people that know you and they know God, and tell those people in your group what you were thinking when you read these words of Jesus. And then subject your interpretation to the collective interpretation of that group. Okay? Now the list. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is fast approaching. So here, in order to enter, we must repent. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, that is, the religious leaders in your day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here, we have to have a righteousness that is beyond Deeper, fuller, and more aggressive and genuine than that of the religious leaders in our day. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven because the decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. So here, in order to enter, we have to obey. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, you've been given the opportunity to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Others have not. To those who are open to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But to those not listening, even what they have will be taken away. So here, in order to enter the kingdom, we have to be open to his teaching and we have to keep listening. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that someone discovers in a field. In his excitement, he hides it again and then he sells everything he owns to get enough money to buy that field and to get the treasure too. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. 
And when he discovers a pearl of great value, he sells everything else he owns and he buys that pearl. So here, in order to enter the kingdom, we have to be willing to trade everything else we want and have for the sake of owning that kingdom. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here, we have to change before we enter the kingdom of heaven, not afterwards, and we have to have a posture of humility. In Matthew chapter 19, he said, if you wish to be perfect, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. For it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here, he's simply saying, everything you own, you have to put at my disposal. Give it to the poor and then follow after me. Because riches don't make it impossible, but they make it hard. Translated. People, as Americans, we pursue things, we want things that make it hard to get into the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 21, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people that produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. So here, in order to enter the kingdom, we have to produce the fruit of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, if your eye, your hand, your foot causes you to stumble, eliminate it, for it's better to enter the kingdom of God half blind than to have two eyes and be thrown in hell. So here, we have to ruthlessly eliminate anything in our lives that impedes us from getting into the kingdom. Get rid of it. However radical and expensive it may seem. In Mark chapter 10, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom, That word, by the way, means to embrace, to learn, to take it up as one's own. Whoever does not embrace the kingdom and learn the kingdom and take it up as if it were one's own kingdom will never enter it. So here, we have to aggressively receive it and learn it and practice it until it becomes our default. In Matthew chapter 12, a man says to Jesus, you're right. Jesus says, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, and the man says, you're right. That's nice when Jesus hears he's right. He's, 
The man says, to love God with all your heart, your understanding and your strength and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, that's more important than all the offerings and sacrifices. And when he heard the man's answer, Jesus looked at him and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here, in order to enter the kingdom, one must love God and love other people as much as they already love themselves. In John chapter 3, the last, Jesus said to a man in the middle of the night, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. Two verses later, he said it again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of spirit. So here, to enter the kingdom of God, one has to be born there. One doesn't enter the kingdom. One is born into it. Now, there are some of you, maybe, who are familiar with these passages, and you think you know what they mean. It is better to approach all 12 of these in the spirit of humility. And whatever else you know this morning, and listen to me, whatever church taught you whatever they taught you, whatever the evangelicals taught you about this, and whatever the Catholics taught you about that, and whatever the Protestants said about this, put that aside for a moment. Put the words of Jesus in front of you and wrestle with them. You cannot make these things lie down. They will frustrate you. But the battle is worth it. And do not struggle with the idea of whether you're in or whether you're out or you used to be in and now you're thrown out. If these words seem hard to you, it's only because you were groomed for this world to ignore that one. Your struggle is not with Jesus' kingdom. It's with this kingdom and the way you were taught to love it. That is your real struggle. But if you just let Jesus talk, just let him talk. It's a great risk to reduce these things. I'm afraid if I distill them, I'll make it easier for you and you won't look at the others. But at the risk of that, and because I'm a preacher and that's what preachers do, I I find most of what Jesus said falls into two categories. The first 
is that Jesus talks about being born into the kingdom or we can't enter it. And being born is not something that you can make happen. It's something someone else has to decide for you. So any attempt to reduce this Is it an experience? Any attempt to reduce this to three or four things that you have to do and then presto, you're in on the authority of somebody's list. Put that down. What Jesus said was, flesh and blood cannot produce this kind of birth. Jesus said, The flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And what the Spirit gives birth to does not come from a human decision. It comes from God. And that's hard for some of you because it feels like you're losing control. And you want this. And you can't make it happen. But if you just Let the text talk. Jesus is describing a miraculous birth inside of every person who enters the kingdom of God. And that birth is like the changing of water into wine. It's like a 90-year-old or a virgin, if you will, giving birth to a child. These things don't happen just because we want them to. God has to make these things happen. When you are born again, God visits you like he did Mary one day. You're minding your own business, and all of a sudden, God shows up in your life, and he says, greetings, favored one. And you say, what did I do to deserve this? He says, nothing, and that's the point. Then God says to you, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you and the one to be conceived in you will be called the child of God. And that life, it belongs to you, but it's not from you. It is within you, but it's other than you. And you can't make that happen. But when it does, you feed it and you care for it and you nurture it because in your mind you have that day when that life is, in Paul's words, fully formed inside of you and that life takes you over. So, if for some of you the kingdom of God is nothing more than a series of, uh, of social justice initiatives, I say, yes, you're right. It does involve those initiatives. But remember, one does not get into the kingdom just by doing the right agenda. One is born there. They do not just wish themselves there. I know that frustrates you and I know I know full well what I've said just now has 
pretty much eliminated much of what we call modern evangelism. And I couldn't be happier about that. Much of what we've, much of what we've done in modern day evangelism isn't birth. We cannot create the child just by going after it. It is miraculously conceived or it's not alive. The other thing, the other category is that of works. Jesus said, the ones who enter the kingdom are not those who cry, Lord, Lord. They are those who do the will of my Father. Jesus said, the person who listens to my words and puts them into action. Jesus said, it is the fruit of righteousness. Their lives produce the fruit of righteousness. He said, they ruthlessly eliminate anything that impedes the way of righteousness. So if for some of you the idea of living in the kingdom involves only an experience whereby you were born again and now you're a citizen and you just wait. I got news for you. Obedience after the way of Christ does not come after one has entered the kingdom. Let the text speak. It happens while one is on the way into the kingdom. The people entering are already obeying. And I know this has blown again some of this idea that it's just all God and we don't have to do anything at all. But there are things you can do today while you wait for the birth. We can discipline our lives. We can eliminate things that compete with the kingdom of God. We can produce the fruit of righteousness. We can go after an obedience that is full and aggressive and meticulous about the details in our lives. And while we do these things, God will bring us to life. If you're worried about the one that you can't control, do the one that you can. Don't believe that you have no control over your desires and the way you gratify them. You have a lot of control over these things. And you don't need to excuse them any longer just because you're afraid that they'll keep you out. Are you guys still there? I feel like I've been preaching to myself. How do people live 
once they have entered. Well, what you've heard Jesus say that is that the kingdom of God uh, is, is something you enter when it enters you. What he said was, unless you receive the kingdom, so it enters you, you can't enter. So it's happening at the same time. When the kingdom of God enters us, we enter into the kingdom. And the way that we participate with the kingdom is we take that part of us and we subject it to the authority and the beautiful vision of King Jesus. Our calling in this world, church, is to take the only part of this world that we are responsible for, and that starts with our physical bodies. And we devote our bodies to the service of God because our bodies are that part of this world that we ourselves are and for which we bear responsibility. We take these bodies and we devote them to the mission of the kingdom of God. We take our families, we take our studies and our offices, our teams, and whatever it is we're doing in our work, and we devote that recklessly into the mission of the kingdom of God. And when we do these things, they become a portal through which this invisible world takes physical, tangible shape in this world. It's beautiful. This thing that nobody believes in suddenly is real and it's practical. When we take responsibility for our little parts and it makes the gospel credible, If you're like me, so much of what you do, you, uh, well, you feel like it doesn't matter. You feel like, I mean, I think I, I think sometimes on a good day, what, what I can do here does, but just about everything else, I think is is small and. It's out of the way and it's not making a dent. And you ever feel like that? Like the work you're doing and the stuff people require from you doesn't really have any impact in the next world. And yet, I keep telling you that, oh, it matters, it matters. And then you go to work tomorrow and it's just that same list of mundane activity, totally ignored, disconnected from anything large and meaningful. In 1948, J.R. Tolkien was writing a novel called Lord of the Rings. Have you heard of this? He'd spent more than 10 years writing this. The last two, ferociously, now halfway through, he was out of gas. He'd reached an impasse. He had developed all these characters And these characters were doing all these fanciful things. They were in a hundred different places, meeting characters we'd never heard of. 
And he had no way of reining it in. Tolkien started to worry that he'd abort the process. He started to feel that the novel was not worth reading. There was no point finishing. And yet he said to not finish this was a dreaded and numbing thought. Those are his words. He said, and these are his words, he was out of mental energy and inventions. (laughs) He was done. Halfway through. One of his friends, C.S. Lewis, paid him a visit. Said, you have to finish. This is a good story. But one day, Tolkien woke up with another story on his mind. And before he finished Lord of the Rings, he wrote this one in a few days. Sent it off to what was called the Dublin Review. And it was promptly ignored. Almost no one's heard of it. It's called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is an old English word that means to fidget, to pick at something, to perfect it until you kill it. (laughs) Niggle was a painter headed on a journey he did not want to take, but he couldn't get out of it. And so he told himself he had to finish these portraits before that dreaded, what he called, wretched journey. There was one portrait in particular he couldn't get away from. It was the picture of a leaf, just a leaf. And the leaf was connected to a tree, and the tree was in a forest, and the forest was set on hills, and those hills in his mind went over and over into the future. And the closer he got to them, the deeper they went. So Niggle got himself a canvas, a big canvas, Big as the wall, and he put it on the wall of his shed. And he started to paint. And soon after he started, he went to niggle. He fidgeted with it, he tinkered with it, he perfected it, getting just the right hue with the number of dewdrops on the edges. That one leaf, it's like he never got beyond that one leaf. He was busy perfecting the leaf. Then he would move to the tree and cross it out and come back and perfect the leaf. He would lie in bed at night and envision the tree, but wake up in the morning and fidget with his leaf. And the more he fidgeted, the worse it got. Niggle was a painter, I say, and he was a bad one. There were two reasons for that, said Tolkien. One is because he was the kind of painter who is better at painting leaves than trees. So the more he fidgeted with his little thing, the worse it got. The other is that he kept allowing himself to get distracted by his neighbors. His neighbors were, they never tired of asking Niggle for another favor. One in particular, Mr. Parrish, lived right next door, was old, crippled, his wife had taken sick, and he would come over time and time again wanting something. One day there was a knock on the door, and it was Mr. Parrish again, and he said to Niggle, 
My wife has taken the fever, and I wonder if you'd fetch the doctor. Well, as Niggle was, he was kind and courteous to his visitor, but inside he was grumbling. Still, when Mr. Parrish left, Niggle went out, got on his bicycle, and headed into town through what Tolkien said, the cold, wet weather. And while he traveled, the weather got into him, started to get sick. When he got to the doctor's, he asked him if he would come and visit Mr. Parrish's wife. The doctor said he would, but he wouldn't come right away. And so Niggle turned and went back to his shed and started to work on his leaf. Then he got real sick and he retired and went into the house and lied down. Soon a fever took over. And while he rested, all he could think about was painting another leaf and someday the tree. There was a knock on the door. I'm busy, he said. Go away. They knocked again and entered. It was the driver. He'd come to take Niggle on a journey. Niggle sighed and looked at his almost blank canvas and thought, I will never get to finish. And even the thing I've done is terrible. There isn't time to pack, said the driver. Get in the carriage. Niggle left the shed, jumped in the carriage, and the driver drove him to a train station. They boarded Niggle on the train. Soon after he boarded, said Tolkien, they entered a long, dark tunnel. And he heard two voices. They were talking about him. One was the voice of justice, the other the voice of mercy. Justice went first. What to do with little niggle, he said. The man is so small, lazy, slow. He procrastinates. Everything he touches, he perfects until it's worse. And he always gets distracted. He never finishes the thing he put himself to. Ah, but said the voice of mercy. What he wanted was good and it was right. And when he got distracted, it was never for himself. He was always running after somebody else's errands, always helping someone else, always their agenda. Well said, Mr. Justice, it's your call. Mercy said, it is. And I think he belongs. No sooner did he say it when the train came into a clearing than it stopped. Niggle got off and in front of him was a large grassy slope with stairway 
a gate. Next to the gate was a bicycle. It looked like his. It had a sign on it in black letters said niggle. It was his. Niggle had not taken the train ride at all. Niggle had died. This was the afterlife. He climbed the staircase and he started to ride his bicycle. He went for a mile or two until he looked up and saw and when he saw it, he was so shocked he fell off the bike for there in front of him Said Tolkien, was the tree. His tree, completely finished, every part of it perfect, even the leaf Niggle had ruined with his imperfections. And the tree belonged to a forest. And the forest went on and on. And the further into it he went, the further on it went. And what Niggle was incapable of grasping or ruining in this world was there in the next. In full, vivid detail. There's a lot of people in the room this morning who are painting leaves. You care very deeply about the stuff you do. You love your families. You work hard. You want to be the best, you say. And it's not for you. It's for something bigger than you. But you never get it right, do you? You're a perfectionist. You fidget. And when it's right, you tinker again until you wreck it. You procrastinate. They call you lazy. You never get on to the whole thing. It's just your little leaf. And nobody cares. No one is paying attention. And it's totally disconnected from any big picture. I have news for you. <laughs> there really is a tree. There is a tree. That thing you're working on today that you don't think is right is part of something that is big and bold and beautiful in the world where we are headed. The one right next door. And every time you open your family, every time you do your work,
Every time you teach a child to read or walk. Every time you hold a meeting that goes contentious and you exhibit a peaceful and calm spirit. Every time you listen to someone and rescue them from the brink. Every time you take time to explain the kingdom to people who don't even believe in it. Surely, every prayer you utter, every scripture you study, every act of kindness that you give to a fellow human being, even the acts of kindness you give to creatures that are not human beings, all of it belongs. All of it's there. And when you enter the kingdom of God, you bring it with you. Can you name it? Do you know what it is? Is it your family? Is it your project? Is it the team? Is it some initiative? What is it that you're doing right now that is frustrating you, that is never quite right, and it seems detached from the whole, and nobody cares, and yet you can't walk away, and you're afraid that you'll quit, but you can't. It tears you up. What is it? Can you name it? 